Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek, and have a seat. It is good to be with you today. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. Uh, if it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are, we are thrilled and excited that you're here worshiping with us, and we would love a chance just to reach out and say thank you so much for your visits. If you can do me a huge favor, let me know that you're here. You can do that a couple different ways. One is just to text the word welcome to the number you see on the screen right there. You just text the word welcome to that, or if you prefer uh, you can come to our welcome table right outside as we go back into uh, the hallway there. We have our welcome cards. Uh, all you got to do is fill one of those out, put your information on there, uh, leave it right there on the table. And like I said, that gives me a chance to reach out and just give you a phone call, send you an email, something like that, just, just to say thank you and let you know how much we truly do appreciate you being here. So if you could do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And you find us working our way through the book of Acts. So we're going to continue that today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 19. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting in verse 11. Um, we're going to finish out Acts chapter 19 today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 19, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen right here. Or if you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles on our welcome table right out there in the hallway. We would love to give you one of those. Please take that as our gift to you. Uh, and again, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So thank you to Lee, uh, one of our elders who preached last week, finished off chapter 18 and began chapter 19. I was here. Uh, I was serving in our baby room uh, in our kids' ministry last week. Uh, and thankfully, we'd already scheduled Lee to preach that week because uh, this week and starting last weekend, my, two of my kids went down with the flu. So a uh, miserable week for us, but everybody's feeling better today. So my wife was scheduled to serve in there, but she had to stay home with our sick kids. But thankfully, again, we are all, uh, all better this, uh, this weekend, and it hasn't hit us, so be praying for that to continue. Um, but again, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we saw uh, the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey at the end of Acts chapter 18. So we've got our map that we've been, uh, this is a new map for us. Uh, for uh, the, the last few weeks, we've been checking and seeing exactly where Paul is going on his missionary journeys. So we see at the end of 18, he starts his third one, and he, and he goes to the same places that he started out in the very first missionary journey. He hit those places again in the second, and then we see at the beginning of the third, he goes through the areas of Galatia and Phrygia and visiting the churches that he planted all the way back in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And eventually, we see him make his way to the province of Asia, to the city of Ephesus. Now, that's modern-day Western Turkey. And we see, as we see at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, Paul spends two years ministering in Ephesus. Most likely by the time he's done in Ephesus, it's closer to three years that he spent planting that church, ministering in that area. We see that he goes throughout the province of Asia there, planting other churches. So Paul spends a great deal of time in this area ministering. And we're going to pick up the continued ministry in Ephesus here at the end of Acts chapter 19. And what we see in Acts chapter 19 is we kind of zoom out to the larger picture of what's happening spiritually in this city. We see what's happening with the church at large in this city. No longer is, is Paul the primary character that we're focusing on. We're seeing what's going on in the city at, at large here. So let's go ahead and dig in. Again, we're starting in verse 11 of Acts chapter 19, and we're going to carry it all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 41. So let's go ahead and jump in here, starting in verse 11. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand, so that even 
face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So, I mean, right away, we're seeing God do some incredible stuff through Paul, right? This is all God's work, but he's doing it through Paul. So much so, like, these extraordinary miracles, like uh, pieces of clothing that have even touched Paul are being used by God to heal people. I mean, that, that's incredible. That's awesome. Verse 13. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so they ran out of the house naked and wounded. All right, that's a crazy story, y'all, right? We're going to come back to that. We'll talk about that. That's crazy. Wild stuff happening here in Ephesus. And you never, you never root for the demon or the demon-possessed person, but I, I mean, that, that's just funny, right? Like, that's what goes, they get beat up. Seven guys get beat up by one dude and run out of that house naked. That's just crazy. All right, verse 17. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So man, God's doing some incredible stuff here in the city of Ephesus. Some crazy things are happening, but God is using that to declare his name, declare the gospel. People are believing, people are repenting, people are growing spiritually. Some, some amazing stuff happening, right? Let's keep going, verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, so we give it a little foreshadowing there of what's coming next. So eventually Paul is going to leave the province of Asia. He's going to work his way back through Macedonia to Achaia, the places that he went on that second trip, Philippi, Athens, Corinth, those kind of places, and eventually make his way back to Jerusalem. And he knows ultimately, ultimately the Lord is bringing me to Rome. I'm going to Jerusalem, but I know I'm going to Rome. And that's exactly what we're going to see unfold in the coming chapters in the book of Acts. But for now, he's camping out in Ephesus. Verse 23, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be, may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. 
Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And man, if that is not a picture of social media today, just a bunch of people angry for no reason, like they don't even know. They're just mad to be mad. That's what's going on in Ephesus. These people are just mad to be mad, and a riot's happening. Let's go on. Let's keep going here. Verse 33, some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front, motioning With his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the city clerk, so the city clerk is an elected official at this time and and has some of the most power in the city. This guy would have been uh, easily one that could calm the crowd down. So this, this guy's a big deal. City clerk's a big deal. City clerk had calmed the crowd down. He said, people of Ephesus, What person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and do not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so the city clerk calms everything down. And if you remember what we've seen in Philippi and Thessalonica, this charge of of Paul being a disturbance, of creating a riot, of causing an issue in the city, like that's a big deal. The Roman Empire took it very seriously when there were riots and disturbances in their cities, and they wanted to stop all of that and prevent all of that from happening. So the city clerk is telling them, hey guys, look, if we keep this going, if this goes bad, and look, you don't have a legal case, so you better calm down, or this is going to go badly, and Rome is not going to be happy. Like, we're going to be in trouble. So he calms them down, and we move on the riot is stopped. All right, so what's, what's going on here in Ephesus? What are some things that we can draw from? What are some things that we can learn? Well, when I read this passage, one of the things that stands out to me is, man, at the forefront, at the front and center is spiritual warfare, right? Like we see the gospel going out. We see people putting their faith in Jesus. We see people responding in repentance to the name of Jesus. And, and what's coming back to push back against it? The, the darkness, the evil. Sin is pushing back against that. Here in Ephesus, man, we are seeing up close and personal the battle of spiritual warfare that is going on constantly. And that's the first thing that that we need to know is is that spiritual warfare is real. It's real. And I think too often we can kind of be on one extreme or the other with spiritual warfare, right? Like either everything is spiritual warfare or, or nothing is, right? So like sometimes we say like everything is. So man, that person that stole your parking spot in, in, on the way to the grocery store, like, oh, man, that's the devil. That's the devil just trying to get it, just trying to keep me down. It's like, well, no, that person probably just didn't see you or they're just mean and wanted to take your parking spot, right? Or it's like, it, it's nothing. Like, we don't ever think anything is, is spiritual warfare. We're, we're too enlightened Westerners, right? That we don't need to talk about the spiritual stuff. We don't need to talk about the supernatural. So we just kind of push it aside. We pretend it's not there. We don't talk about it, but, but, but it's real, right? It's real. Spiritual warfare is real. 
We have a real enemy, Satan, that wants to attack us and destroy us all the time. That's all he wants to do. That's his goal, is to take us down and lead us astray. Demons are real. They're real. There is real power that comes along with evil. There is real evil supernatural power at work in this world. That's real. Whether we want to believe it or ignore it or not, it, it, it's real. We see this all throughout Scripture. Now, thankfully, Willie over here, I'm going to give him a shout-out, and he's going to be embarrassed by this, but Willie preached a great sermon about a month ago on spiritual warfare. So if you want to know more high-level what that is, what that looks like in the lives of believers and how we combat that, go back, listen to that podcast. Um, but I just want to point out that this is, this is a big deal. It matters, and this is exactly what we see happening in the city of Ephesus. So we have a real enemy, and he seeks to destroy us. And one of the primary ways that Satan attacks us is through deception. It's through deception. He wants to lie to us and use those lies to lead us astray from God. Jesus says in John 8, that Satan is the father of lies, and lying is his native tongue. When he speaks, all that comes out are lies. This is one of the primary ways that he seeks to destroy us, is, is he deceives us. He leads us astray, and, he, and he's tricky about it. He's good. So what he does is he takes these things from God. He takes God's blessings and the good things that he gives us, and he twists them and creates this counterfeit version of it that he uses to buy, have us buy into that and lead us astray. I mean, we see this all the time where, where Satan is mimicking the things of God to lead us astray. And we see this in a very real sense when, when Moses goes before Pharaoh. If you remember that story, what, Moses goes before Pharaoh to say, let my people go. He throws his staff down, turns into a snake. And what do the magicians do? What, do, what does Pharaoh's magicians do? They do the exact same thing. God uses Moses to turn the Nile River to blood. What do, what do his magicians do? The same exact thing. Satan takes his limited power and he, he twists and he turns and he reshapes and reforms and creates this counterfeit version of the good things that God gives us. And we see this all the time, right? Things like, like money and possessions, those, those, are, those are blessings from God. And what does Satan do? He, he twists those and, and uses that to lead us astray to where we're living for money and possession rather than the things of God. Sex. Sex is a wonderful blessing from God meant to be used in the context of a biblical marriage between one man and one woman. And what has Satan done? He's taken that good thing and he's twisted it. And he's created this counterfeit version that leads to all the sexual immorality that we see running rampant across our world. And we can go on and on with the things that God wants to give us, that God wants to bless us with, and how Satan twists those and creates this counterfeit version and leads us astray through his deception. So there's two counterfeit things that we see here that Satan uses in this passage. Two ways that he leads us astray that we see in this passage. One is through counterfeit power, and the other is through counterfeit worship. So that's where we're going today. The first one, counterfeit power. So if you're taking notes, counterfeit power. So right away, we see some, some crazy stuff happening in the city of Ephesus, right? Like there's, there's exorcisms happening, there's talk of magic and things like that. So what we need to know is Ephesus was known for its culture of magic, known for its culture of magic and its love of the occult. It was a place of uh, gathering of all uh, different types of magic and witchcraft and any other kind of, of dark power, dark evil that was going on in the world. Man, Ephesus was the place where you came to participate in that. 
If you're a Harry Potter fan, any wizards coming from Ephesus would have been put in Slytherin House. If nobody else gets that, just know I'm a nerd and I love Harry Potter. That's okay. I'm, I'm all right to admit that. But magical power was, was real. I mean, again, like sometimes this is the stuff of legend. And yes, we see fables and, and it twists and it makes it into this stuff that's not real. But, but there, there, there's some real evil connected to this kind of practice. And we see this happening in Ephesus. And look, magical practice was all about power. It was all about power. It was all about uh, demonstrating and wielding power. So when you had somebody who could come and exercise a demon, man, that was, whoa, that was real power. So you see this practice of exorcism happening in places like Ephesus. And it was a big deal. It was a lucrative business. So when you got these these sons of Sceva, man, they were these Jewish exorcists, and they were apparently well-known, and they, they were able to do some of the exorcism, and they wanted any kind of power that they could get their hands on. So what you see is, is these exorcists trying by any means necessary to, to gain more power, whether it was through some new incantation or whether it was by using some new powerful name. And that's what we see happen. See, Paul is performing all of these miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. And they, they see that, they take note of that, and they're like, oh man, I, I want to try to use that. I want to try to use that. So that's exactly what they do. They, they try to use the name of Jesus they try to use God's power. So these Jewish exorcists try to, to do that, and it backfires in, in a crazy way, right? Like they, they go and they say, what, what, what's the language that, that's used here? Uh, verse 13, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. That guy, that guy that, that, that I hear so much about. I, I command you in that name. That's a powerful name. Yeah, what do you think about that? And demon's like, man, I don't know who you are. I know Jesus. I know Paul, which that tells us, like, demons knew the name of Paul. That should tell us something, right? We don't have time to get into that. That tells us something, though. They knew Jesus. They knew Paul. And they were like, but, but who are you? Who are you again? Yeah, I ain't got time for you. I ain't got time for you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you got going on. But, but that, that, that ain't happening. Don't bring that here, right? Like, see, this, this demon knew something that we so often forget. God's power only comes through faith. It only comes through faith in God. That's the only way God's power works. It's through faith. And this demon knew that these guys had no faith. They had no faith, man. You're, you're just trying to use some name to have some, some sort of little bit of power, and that's not going to work here. That's not going to work here. See, they thought they could tap into a greater power. They thought they could tap into the power of God. But that's not how it works, right? That's not how it works. That only comes through faith, these people were led astray by Satan's counterfeit version of power. They were led astray. They believed they could benefit from God and his power without God, without faith. They were lied to. They were led astray. I mean, that, that's so often us. That is so often us. We are so often led astray by false counterfeit power. And you're like, well, man, I'm not trying to exercise demons. I'm not trying to practice magic. I don't got a wand that I use and try to build these. Like, I'm not doing that, Travis. What are you talking about? I don't try to get power. No, we do. We try to get power all the time. And I think there's three primary ways that we seek power in this world. We seek these fake versions of power. One of the ways that we seek power is power over others. Another way to say that is authority. We seek power over others. And look, that's just obvious. Like, we don't have to admit it here, but, like, we like having authority over people. And this starts at a young age, man. I see this with my kids all the time. They love bossing each other around. All the time. All the time. So I got Zayden, who's almost seven. 
Livy, who's six, and we got Myla, who's about a year and a half. She'll be two in February. And they all love telling each other what to do. And all the time, I'm constantly hearing, especially the older you, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. And now I've got Myla, who, again, almost two. She's starting to talk a lot more, starting to verbalize things, and she's starting to be able to express herself more in words and what she wants and doesn't want. And, man, one of the things she loves doing now is yelling no at you. If she doesn't want something, she doesn't like something, no, no. We got a little puppy now, and she's, she'll jump on us, and, you know, she's excited. She's a puppy. And what is Her name's Winnie, and Milo will go, no, Winnie, no, Winnie, and just push her down and tell her no. If she's trying to go down the slide in her backyard and Livy and Zayden are in line first, no, no, Bubba, that's what she calls Zayden. No, yay, yay, that's what she calls Livy. No, no, we're like, no, it's okay, you got to take turns. The other night I was, I was reading Bible story with our kids, and they're sitting on the couch, and I'm sitting on the floor, just kind of Indian South, sitting there reading the Bible. And Myla has this chair in the living room. It's her chair. It's her pink chair. And it's sitting right next to me, my, my knee's kind of touching it. Well, at some point, she decides she wants to sit in the chair. So she gets down from the couch. She goes to her chair. She can't get past my knee, so she tells me to move. And she says, move, like, boof. So she's like, boof, boof, dada. And she's, like, pushing me away, yelling at me. Like, she loves telling us what to do. Like, this starts at an early age. We like having power over other people. We like having authority over other people. We don't like people having authority over us, right? We don't like having to answer somebody else. We like having autonomy. We like being able to be our own boss, to set our own schedule, right? To not having to answer to somebody else out there. We like that. We don't like having to answer to a higher power or authority. So we're led astray by that all the time. Another way that we seek power is power over our circumstances. Another way to say that is control. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but how many of us have a control problem in here, right? So often, right? So many of us. Again, I won't make you admit that, but often we have this desire to control our circumstances. We don't like this feeling of, of not being in control of our own destiny, our own fate, right? We don't like having uh, something else dictate how our lives end up. We don't like this feeling of not knowing how something is going to work out. So what do we do? We push against that. And we, we try to manipulate situations or people or we try to lie or make ourselves look better or make our situation look different or feel different just to make us feel like we have this sense of control. I mean, I don't know about you parents out there, but having kids, th- that is a war all the time. Because I don't want my kids to face danger. I don't want my kids to go through a hard time. So wh- where, where's my temptation? I mean, it, it's to control everything. It's to control their environment. It's to control who they interact with because I want to protect them. And, and in one sense, that's really good. That's a good thing for parents to want to do that, right? That, that shows wisdom. But, man, it can easily tip over into distrusting God and having just too much desire for control over those circumstances. So we try to control our circumstances all the time. Another way that we seek power is power over ourselves. Another way to say that is our power to change. I mean, how how many millions of dollars is spent on self-help resources, right, every year? I mean, you look at the top-selling resources, books, whatever, self-help is always going to be up near the top of that list. How often is the message from our culture, oh, if you want to change this about yourself, all you got to do is have the willpower, right? It's mind over matter. Pain is just a construct of the mind that you just got to ignore and push through, right? Like just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You can do this. You got this. You don't need anybody's help. You can do this, right? Like that's, that's the message of the culture. You can change anything you want to about yourself. If you have enough time, enough willpower, enough money, you can change anything. I and mean, we so want to change things sometimes. 
We so want to change things about ourselves or about our situation. And we, we seek power to change. And look, these are just a few ways that we chase after counterfeit versions of power in this world. We need to remember and remind ourselves as men that, that that's not real power. That's not real power. And it's ultimately not going to accomplish what we want. See, no matter how hard we try, there's always going to be things out of our control. Right? Like we live with this idea of control. We're never really in control of anything. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we can admit that. No matter how hard we, we try and how much effort we put into it, there are going to be some things about ourselves that we can't really change. Some things about our circumstances, about our life, about our family that we just can't change. There's always going to be a higher power and authority that we have to answer to. Right? We always have somebody in authority over us. And we're like, no, I don't. Well, there's a God of this universe who is judge over everything. And we sit under his authority at all times. So these, these ways that we chase after power are just, they're fake. And Satan uses them to lead us astray and trust in the things of this world or trust in ourselves over God. So counterfeit power. Second way we, we see that he leads us astray in this passage is through counterfeit worship. Counterfeit worship. We'll take a closer look at this in, in a moment with our third point, but, but after the, the sons of Sceva situation, uh, we see people respond, right? They respond to the gospel, they repent, <clears throat> God's changing things. It's this incredible moment of spiritual growth in the city of Ephesus, but this leads to what we see in the last half of this chapter, this riot, or what, what verse 23 says, uh, verse 23, the, the language is, is this, about this time, there was a major disturbance about the way. The way is a phrase that Luke uses as he writes Acts to refer to the Christian life, to following Jesus. So there's this major disturbance about the way started by this silversmith, Demetrius. And he basically creates a riot. Now, now why does he do that? Why does he do that? Let's go back to verses 25 and 26. He says, or 26 and 27, sorry. He says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and our magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. So what's the, what's the issue? What, what's the riot being caused? It's Demetrius saying that this guy, Paul, this guy, Paul, is leading us all astray. And look, that the key, I love that he says, not just in Ephesus, in all of Asia, man. Like, that's the work that God is doing through Paul in this. Like, it is an entire province that's hearing the gospel and responding to faith in Jesus. And he's saying, man, Paul's leading all these people astray. No longer are they worshiping Artemis. Man, they're, they're, they're worshiping something else. He's leading them astray. So he creates this, this big deal over the fact that they're no longer worshiping, as he says, the great goddess Artemis. Now, in Greek mythology, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus, the twin sister of the god Apollo, and she's the goddess of things like the hunt and nature and vegetation and childbirth. And there was this massive temple built to Artemis in the city of Ephesus. And if you look up the seven ancient wonders of the world, one of those is the temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. 
It was this huge temple. It was, it was over 370 feet long and over 150 feet wide, built of marble and ornately decorated. Like this thing was an incredible feat of architecture at this time. Just a beautiful, massive temple. So worshiping Artemis was a big deal in the city of Ephesus. It was a big deal in the province of Asia. It was a big deal all over the place. And what we, what we see from this passage is that there were, there were smiths like Demetrius who, who to help people worship their great goddess, they would create the, these replicas of the goddess Artemis or they would create replicas of the temple made of, of stone or marble or, or wood or, or silver like Demetrius. And people would buy these little idols and they would take them home and be able to worship Artemis from home rather than having to always come to the temple. So this was, again, everybody's doing this. Like everybody's worshiping Artemis. This is a, a big deal. This is a big popular business at the time. And Demetrius is mad that these people are, are leading, or that, that Paul is leading people astray from, from worshiping their gods. And this is what people did. People worship these, these gods, these idols, these myths at this time. And it's, it's no different today. It's no different today. You're like, man, I, I didn't even hear of Artemis until you said something. What are you talking about? Well, we all worship something. We all worship. We are created by God to be worshiping beings. He created us to worship. Now, in his design, he created us ideally and initially to worship him and him alone. But sin breaks that, and now what we do is we worship other things. We don't worship God. We, we worship other stuff. We're always worshiping, always worshiping something or, or, or many things. I mean, just, just look at some of the ways that we worship. I mean, you don't think there's worshiping going on. Uh, go to any sporting event. Go to any college football game here in Georgia, and you'll see a lot more worship happening there than you do on Sunday morning sometimes. There's a lot more raising of hands and clapping and yelling and praise than we see sometimes here on Sunday morning, right? Let's be real. You go to any political rally, you'll see worship. That's a big way we worship. You any, any concert, entertainment. I mean, just think of the, the billions of dollars that are spent on tech and entertainment and things like that every year. Y'all, we worship. And we worship hard sometimes. So worship at its base level essentially means to, to ascribe or give worth or value to something or someone. And with that definition, man, we can worship almost anything or anybody out there. If we give enough worth and value to something, we can worship anything. We can worship anything. And this is a big deal because, because what we worship, that's what we give our lives to. What we worship is what we give our lives to. The things in our life, the people in our lives that we hold most valuable, that's who gets our time. That's who gets our money, our resources, our brain space, our devotion, our dedication. I mean, just think of all the things that we love and value in our life. How much of ourselves are we giving to those things? See, what we, what we worship directs our, our mind, our heart, and our actions. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal. This is why there's so many verses in your Bible about God commanding and calling us not to worship false gods and false idols and instead worship him. 
because he knows what we worship, that's what we're going to live for. And God knows the best thing for us is to live for him. So he's constantly calling us back to him to worship him. And Satan, at the same time, because he knows how important this is, is constantly working to create these counterfeit gods, these false gods for us to worship instead of the one true God. Because Satan knows, man, if he can get our worship, he's got our lives. He's got us. Let me just think of all the different ways and the things that we worship, right? I mean, money, that's a big one. Money is a big one. Possessions, wealth, materialism, whatever word you want to put on it, it's essentially a love and a desire for money. Jesus talks about money almost more than any other subject because he knows how much it captures our heart. This is what's really going on with Demetrius, right? It's not really about Artemis. It's not really about worshiping because he shows his cards. Look again at verse 25. Look at verse 25. When he's, he's getting these people together, he's saying when, we had, when he had assembled them as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. That's what he's ultimately mad about. People turning away from Artemis and worshiping something else, man, he doesn't care about that. He cares that now his, his money's going away. His, his bank account took a hit because of people repenting and turning to Jesus. That's what he's mad about. That's the idol that he's worshiping the most. And how often do we worship at the idol and the altar of money and possessions and wealth and finances? Our jobs, our jobs can easily become an idol. And that might not even be because we were so devoted. It just might be just because we're, we're giving so much to that job. We might not even necessarily want to do that, but that's, that's what our actions are doing. How much are we giving of ourselves to our jobs? Uh, so many, uh, again, we can just list things. Uh, the altar of sex, the idol of power, the God of comfort. And how often do we worship the God of comfort in our society and in our culture? Follow Jesus to those places that make me uncomfortable, that stretch, oh, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. Let's stay safe over here. Share the gospel with somebody? No, that's crazy talk. What if they don't like that? What if they're mean? What if they tell me no and tell me to go away? That's too uncomfortable. I can't do that, Jesus. We're worshiping the God of comfort. Acceptance. Man, how often do we worship at the altar of acceptance? Whether it's from you know, other people like, like our spouse or our kids or our, our boss, other people in our lives. How often do we, do we worship at the altar of our hobbies? And hobbies can be a great thing. It can be a good outlet. It can be a healthy practice for you. It can be a really good thing. But I mean, if, we, if we give too much to that, it can quickly turn into an idol. Ourselves, man, ourselves, we're a big idol that we worship, right? It's all about me. It's all about what I want, what I want to do. Our entertainment. I mean, how many hours are we putting towards binge-watching all those shows on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is these days, right? This right here? How often do we worship at the altar of our phones or the social media that we have? How often do we find ourselves just scrolling? Next thing we know, man, it's been like two hours. And I'm like, what? what are we doing? You know, it's so easy to do that. Look, I could go on and on and on of the different idols and the different gods that we worship in our lives. And look, why do we worship at these altars? Why do, why do we chase after these things? Why do we give so much of ourselves to the things of this world? It's because we've been lied to. 
We've been lied to. We've been led astray. We've been lied to to believe that, man, if I give myself to these things, if I give my life, my heart, my devotion, my money to these things, well, then I'll get what I'm really looking for. Then I'll get what I'm really after. Then I'll finally have fulfillment or satisfaction or life or be free or whatever it is that we're chasing after. That's the lie that we've bought into. This is how Satan deceives us. I mean, the the false gods, the counterfeit gods of our world never deliver on their promises. When we worship at the altar of this world, all we're left with is a life that's broken and lonely and disappointed, empty, never satisfied, always searching for more in something else, always. So what do we do? What do we do? What's what's our action? We've been lied to. We've been led astray. Now what, Travis? Our third point, we'll end here, is, is to believe truth and repent. Those are our action steps. What do we do in response to this? We believe truth and we walk in repentance. Look at verses 17 through 20 again. It says, When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So what, what can we learn from, from what we see here in the city of Ephesus? How, what can we learn from their response? The first thing that we said, believe truth. Believe truth. The first thing we need to do is stop believing the lies from Satan. Stop believing his deception and believe truth instead. The thing we see from Scripture is behind every sin that we commit, behind every sin is a lie that we believe. Behind every sin is a lie that we believe. Look at how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, writing to the very people that he's ministering to in Acts chapter 19 here. He writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. How does he describe their lives apart from Jesus, their lives soaked in sin? He says that they're in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding. They're ignorant. And this has led them to all sorts of sin, to living for more and more sin. Behind every sin is a lie that we believe. We sin because we bought into this lie that we're somehow better off without God, that we know better than God, that our ways are better than his ways, that we can find whatever we're looking for apart from God. These are lies that we buy into, and those lies lead us to all sorts of different kinds of sin. I mean, just think about some of the things that we struggle with and the lies associated with them. I may be greedy. I might struggle with greed because I don't truly trust in God's provision. I don't truly believe that I can find contentment in the things that he's given me. So I'm looking for something else. I'm prideful because I ultimately, ultimately believe that, that I'm God, that I'm more superior than anybody else, right? That's a lie that I've bought into makes me prideful. 
I'm impatient because I don't truly trust in God's control and his timing for the things in my life. I lust or I'm envious because I don't truly believe that God is the one who satisfies. Behind every sin is a lie that I believe. And I need to stop believing those lies and instead believe in God's truth. This is what Paul writes again to the Ephesians. This time it's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. So what is Paul praying for these Ephesians believers, praying for them to have wisdom and revelation, praying that they would, would remember and know the truths of God. See, when we're tempted, when Satan comes with his lies, with his deception, with his counterfeit versions of the things of God, we need to remind ourselves of God's truth. We need to remember his truth, who he is. We need to remember his promises. We need to remember the beauty and the promise of the gospel that we find all that we could ever want and need in him. That through Christ I am forever loved and accepted and approved by God at all times. We need to remember the truths of God when we're tempted towards greed and materialism. We need to remember it's God who provides it and that he promises to provide us contentment in him. When I'm tempted towards envy and lust, I need to remember the promise of God that he is the one who satisfies. He alone can satisfy. When I'm tempted towards impatience or frustration or anger, I need to remind myself that my God is always in control. His ways are better than mine, and he is working all things together for my good and his glory. I need to remember God's truth. And look, the best way to know God's truth is to read God's truth. We need to know our Bibles, y'all. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate on it. We need to soak daily in God's word. This is the only way we can combat the lies of Satan. Look, Jesus shows us this, right? When we look at the ways that he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes promising these counterfeit versions of things of this world to lead Jesus astray. And what does he do? He combats with God's truth. He goes back to scripture. That's our pattern, y'all. If we're going to know God's truth, we need to read God's truth. Read your Bibles. All right, so we need to believe truth. The second thing we see here is we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to walk in repentance. And we talk about this a lot. What does repentance mean? It means turning away from sin and turning back to God. I turn away from sin and I turn to God. So often we kind of do this, this halfway. We, we turn from sin, but I turn towards myself. I turn towards my own strength. I turn towards behavior modification, things like that. No, I need to turn from sin and to God. That's repentance. And that's what we, that's what we see here with the people of Ephesus, right? We don't see that they just change their beliefs. They do, right? They go from, from not believing in Jesus, not trusting him, to now Jesus' name is being lifted high, right? It's held in high esteem, and they have changed their beliefs. 
But they didn't stop there. That change of belief led to a change in lifestyle. Their change of belief led to a change in lifestyle. Their correction from believing lies to believing truth came with action. It came with action. It says that they, they disclosed and confessed their practices. What that means is they came and confessed and told everybody their different magic spells that they were using. That's what that means. And so what this uh, culture was, uh, magic, the power in magic was with its secrecy. So you didn't tell anybody what it was. You didn't tell anybody what was going on. Man, you just were able to do this stuff, and you kept it secret. And that's where the Ephesians believed. That's where the power was. It was in the secrecy. So when it says that they confessed and disclosed their practices, they were losing all of that power that they thought they had. They were bringing those secrets to light, and with it, the power was gone. That was a big step for them. That was a big deal for these folks. And not only did they do that, I mean, they destroyed their books. This is a way of them showing that I am done with this old way. I'm done with this old lifestyle. I'm, I'm completely done with it. I'm moving past it. I'm now living fully for Jesus. I'm going to show you how much, Jesus, I love you more than this stuff. I'm burning and destroying every remnant of that old lifestyle. I'm done with it. And look, this is how we know that we're walking in biblical repentance. It's because it leads to change. There's action with it. We know that we're really repenting when our actions match what we say we believe. Author and pastor Tim Chester talks a lot about what he calls confessional belief versus functional belief. So confessional belief is the things that we would say, yes, I know that to be true. I would, yes, I agree that, that Jesus is God. Yes, I agree that he calls us to live holy lifestyle. Yes, I agree he doesn't call us to live in the ways of sin. Yes, I agree we're supposed to go and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Yes, I agree with that. So we have these confessional beliefs. But then there's times where our lives don't match what we say we believe. That's what he calls functional belief. So there's times when our lives don't match what we say we believe, and that shows us that there's a disconnect between our confessional belief and our functional belief. And that's where repentance comes in. It's bridging that gap. It's bringing those two things together to where our lifestyle, our actions, match what we say we believe. That's how we know we're taking steps towards biblical repentance. And look, sometimes those steps need to be drastic. They burned 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books. That's a lot of money, y'all. That's a lot of money. They took a drastic step. So we need to ask ourselves, what's our version of a drastic step? What's our version of burning books? For those that maybe struggle with greed and possessions, maybe it's selling those possessions and giving to those in need. That's exactly what Jesus tells the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 19. You want to come follow me? Sell your stuff and then follow me. It's not that possessions and wealth were necessarily bad, but he knows. Jesus knew that that guy was living for his wealth. So, man, you want to show that you're going to follow me? Sell everything. Show me that you love me more than your stuff. Maybe we need to take a drastic step. Maybe, maybe we need to delete certain apps on our phone because they're taking too much of us. Maybe we need to, instead of watching the game this weekend, maybe we need to spend some more quality time with our family. You're like, oh, that's crazy. I know. I know that's crazy. I mean, sometimes Jesus calls us to walk the path that seems crazy. But that's what's best for us. See, true change 
starts with our heart, starts with our belief, and then trickles down to our lifestyle, trickles down to our actions. That's how we change. Again, we, we turn from sin to God. We don't turn from sin towards our own strength, towards, well, I just need to change this, so let me just try harder. Let me just change these behaviors rather than dealing with my heart, rather than dealing with what I believe, rather than dealing with the lies. That's not going to work out for us. We're just going to go right back to sin. True change happens when we turn from our sin and turn to God. True change happens when we, when we love Jesus more than we love our sin. When we believe his truth more than we believe the lies. So church, let's, let's stop believing lies. Let's stop believing lies. Let, let's believe truth and turn back to Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to pray. Johnny and Alex are going to come back up here and lead us in a time of worship, and we're going to do what we do every single Sunday, believers in here, and that is participate in worship and communion. So Christian, in the room, I just want to encourage you, like we do each week, use this time, the band coming and playing and singing, use this time to spend some moments in prayer, to spend some quiet moments of solitude with you and Jesus. And maybe the Lord's brought to mind some lies that we've believed, and we need to take some time to fix those back on Jesus, to stop believing those lies and believe Jesus' truth instead. Maybe there's some things that we need to repent of, and the Lord's brought to mind some action steps that we need to take and step in through faith in him. So Christian, in the room, this is a time for believers only, so believers in the room, take the time you need. Spend time in prayer and worship, and as your hearts are ready, as you are prepared, you can go to either side of the room, to the tables. You take the bread, you take the cup, you eat and you drink, and you remember Jesus' sacrifice for you. You remember the gospel. You remember his shed blood and broken body for you. You remember the grace and forgiveness that he supplies. And that, look, y'all, that's the beauty of the gospel. If we've gone astray, if we've believed lies, if we've lived in a way contrary to what Jesus wants, the beauty of the gospel tells us that there is always grace. There is always forgiveness. That God's mercy and his grace and his love never runs dry. We can always turn back to Jesus. So turn back to Jesus. Come back to him.